The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. You want to open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through uh, this first of the four Gospels. The Gospels, of course, tracing for us the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen so far that Matthew is revealing to us that Jesus is more than just a common man. Jesus was more than just a great rabbi, a great teacher. Jesus was the very Son of God incarnate, God in the flesh. He's shown us this through the birth of Jesus, where Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary, where angels proclaim His name is to be Jesus, for He will save His people from their sin. And the the angels announced His birth, and the shepherds were told of it, and a star is placed in the sky, and wise men come to, to worship, because God has come to be with humanity, Emmanuel, God with us. We saw it through His temptation, that He is the one that withstood temptation. He didn't fall as Adam fell, but he overcame temptation. We've seen it in his teaching, in the Sermon on the Mount, that he taught. And when he finished, everyone was amazed because he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. There was a, a greatness in the power by which he spoke and in the way that he could take the Word of God and reveal it to the people as no one else ever had before. We've seen it in his miracles and the fact that he could <laughs> speak to a a lame person and say, get up and walk, and he got up and walked. And the fact that he could touch a person with leprosy and he didn't become infected by the leprosy, but he, he cleansed the leprosy. We've seen it in his power over nature that he would speak to the storm and the sea and the, the storm would, would go away. We've seen it in his power over even the demons. The demons know that this is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And as he says, go, they, they must depart, they must leave. And it's interesting as we see it so clearly now looking back that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Redeemer. The people that surrounded Him, even the disciples, were very slow to come to understand it. The disciples, we'll see over and over again, were were knuckleheaded in their assessment of Jesus. Even though Jesus had told them over and over who He was and shown them over and over, they again and again sort of goof up. And we'll see that over and over again. But this morning what we're going to see is that, that even the disciples of John, the disciples of John didn't fully understand who Jesus Christ truly was. I grew up playing baseball. And played all through junior high and high school, and I was a lefty, so still am a lefty, so I played pitcher and I played first base. And I can remember being on first base, and we'll just say it was as a real young kid, even though it wasn't, but I was, I was working hard at, at getting my feet set correctly. If you know much about playing first base, especially the lefty, you're supposed to put that left foot on the back, you're supposed to ke- uh, step with your right foot, and you're supposed to catch the ball, kind of stretching out to get to the ball quicker, to get the runner out before he gets to the base. And so I can remember in the middle of a game being so focused and concentrating on, on my footwork, getting set up correctly and properly to reach out and catch the ball. A uh, ball was hit, ground ball to shortstop. Shortstop made a great grab, turns, throws the ball at me, and I, I get my feet set. I'm focused, my feet are set just perfectly, step forward to, to get the ball, making sure I'm stretching just perfectly as you're supposed to do, and, and reach my glove out, and the ball sails 
right over my glove. <laughs> and it hits the fence behind me. And of course the runner then advances and goes on to second base and I look like a total goof who had all the mechanics right, but whose eye was not on the ball. So focused on, on the footwork, on being set properly, on, on, on stretching forth in the right forward in the, in the right way that, that my attention was on all of those things and I, I missed the most important thing. I missed the ball that was coming my direction. The disciples of John in the passage we are about to read are so focused on something else that they, they missed something that was far greater than just a baseball. Matthew chapter 9 verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, this is to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now just to refresh your memory of what we looked at um, last week, go back to verse 10 so you get the context of what the disciples of John are, are coming into and why they are prompted to ask about fasting. Verse 10, we read that now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Tax collectors were pretty wealthy. Remember, they were the hated people of, of Israel because they uh, had sold out to Rome. They were collecting taxes for Rome. They were heretics in the sense that they had denied Jerusalem and denied the, the Hebrew people by doing such. And they were also thieves. They would take more than was actually required to be collected to line their own pockets. Jesus went and he called Matthew, who was a tax collector, to be his disciple. And now he's sitting at the house of a tax collector filled with tax collectors and a bunch of sinners. And this is a wealthy dwelling. He came and sat down with them and his disciples, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said uh, to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to Repentance. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. I have just one point of application for the sermon this morning does not mean it will be short if you're hoping it will be brief, but that does mean we will dive into this one point of application deeply this morning. Don't miss Jesus for all your religious activity. Don't miss Jesus for all your religious activity because of all your religious activity. We're going to spend a bit of time Diving into this passage, just into the text itself and how we ought to understand what Jesus is saying. 
You know, some passages are harder to interpret and apply than others. There's some passages we come to that are just easy to preach, that, that preach themselves, so to speak. And, and as I even read the passage, the conviction of what the passage is speaking can set upon the hearts of people because it's so clear and plain and obvious. And then there's other passages, such as this, that, that it's a little bit more veiled, a little bit more confusing in the, the illustrations even that Jesus, is, Jesus uses in the the sayings that he uses that were familiar perhaps in that day but aren't in this day. And when, when we come across a passage like that, it's difficult because it does require diving into it a bit more, which can be tedious, which can honestly be dry and boring. I, I get my stuff ready, and I often, as I, I get my sermon ready, you know, when I get to the end of the week, I will read other sermons, and I'll even listen to other preachers, and I can tell you there are a lot of dry and boring and lame sermons on this text, and, and my desire is never to be dry and lame and boring, although I often fail. Um, I, I hope to keep your attention, and I hope that we come to see, as we walk through the interpretation of this passage, we'll then close with application that I, that I hope will be driven in, that, that I hope you'll go home remembering and even being changed by this morning for the work that we put into first, rightly interpreting what is written. Because if we don't rightly interpret it, our application does not really matter, is not of the Spirit, is not of God. Let's dive into the passage, first of all, this morning. We come across verse 14, the disciples of John coming to Jesus and having this question about fasting. The disciples of John, that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. He's the, the pre-runner to the Christ. He's the one that, that God has ordained to go before the Messiah, before Jesus, to prepare the way for Jesus. He's the one that when he saw Jesus is the one that proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who said, The one that comes after me is greater than I am. He says, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandals. Now John lived a pretty crazy life. Uh, he was a pretty, you might even call him a fanatic sort of crazy man in what God had called him to because like all, like most of the prophets, even in the Old Testament, John's life was actually a picture in the way that he lived of what God was calling his people to. Okay, the message of John was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. God's about to be doing something great in our midst and it's a time to get serious about sin and to turn repentance from sin back to the Lord. And so John lived a very peculiar life and the things that he ate and the places that he lived and the way that he even dressed. He lived in the wilderness, not in a lavish mansion. He wore base, coarse clothing, clothing that was uncomfortable, that was scratchy, that, that no person in their right mind would wear unless it was commanded of God as a picture before the people. He didn't wear soft, comfortable, um, elaborate robes as the Pharisees. He ate locusts and honey. Locusts, not, not ornate feasts like the, the Pharisees, and even as Jesus is doing in this passage with the, the sinners and, and the tax collectors. This was likely was an ornate feast in the wealth of the tax collectors. His message was a simple message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is at hand. He, he prepared the way for the Christ. 
If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, you see in verse 12, you don't have to turn there, you can if you need to prove what I'm about to tell to you, but Matthew 4 and verse 12, it tells us that John the Baptist was imprisoned. John the Baptist was arrested for the words he was speaking out against Herod and Herod's sin. And so John the Baptist is now sitting in prison. The disciples of John the Baptist, who undoubtedly had embraced all of his ways, of, of the way that he lived and the, the devout, even asceticism that he embraced, this form of, of self-denial, asceticism, where you, you, you're denying self-comfort, you're denying self-well-being as in, in your pursuit of following after God, John was, was commanded to that. Uh, most likely his disciples, his followers, had embraced this similar fashion of living. These disciples, now having their leader, John the Baptist, imprisoned, knowing that John the Baptist had proclaimed of Jesus that Jesus was the Christ, I would imagine had some questions about Jesus. Had some confusion about what all was going on as John the Baptist was sitting in prison and, and Jesus is here feasting with tax collectors and the sinners. Fasting is what they came to him to ask him about. Lord, we, we fast as do the Pharisees. The Pharisees we know by uh, extra-biblical writing. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. It was built into their, their week of, of spiritual discipline, so to speak, of what they would do. They had three main works that they would validate their piety by, that they would show everybody just how righteous they were. Uh, their almsgiving, their giving to the poor, their praying, and they would pray often publicly as a spectacle for all to see, and then their fasting was also an evidence of their righteousness, of their piety. And so they would make fasting a, a public display. They would even um, mar their face with ash, you know, wear different things, different clothing that was based, and, and, and it would be proclaimed, you know, I am in the midst of a fast. And it was in a way for others to see, again, their righteousness. Jesus confronted that in the Sermon on the Mount. And so the disciples of John say, listen, we fast. They were likely very, very strict in their adherence even to the pharisaical laws that had been um, established. Another thing to mention here is that the Bible didn't command them to fast twice a week. The Bible only commanded in the Old Testament one fast once a year at the Day of Atonement. And so all of this is extra-biblical requirements that the Pharisees and their sort of elite spirituality created, rules to live by. So the, 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 the disciples of John... They come to him, and, and they're, they're, they're living as John lives. They're abiding by these fasts. And I imagine, this is speculative, but perhaps this was one of the days that the Pharisees and even the disciples of John were in the midst of a fast. And can you imagine their confusion and even frustration as they come to see Jesus enjoying this elaborate feast with sinners and with tax collectors? And all of his disciples are there eating all of this uh, elaborate meal that has been laid out for them. And the Pharisees are disgruntled by the, the fellowship of Jesus, this great teacher, they're thinking, and, and questioning who he really is and the fact that he would now... Um, he, he would now uh, uh, make himself unclean by eating with such people. And the, 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 the disciples of John now come onto the scene, and, and they're thinking, well, we're fasting, and the Pharisees are fasting. If Jesus is really the Christ, why is he not fasting? And they don't ask Jesus 
himself, why aren't you fasting? But they asked about his disciples. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus has a simple answer for them in verse 15. He uses a a picture, an illustration that sneaks into our day and age, but even more so into their day and age. What does he say? Look to verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He uses a picture of a wedding, and he says, Is a wedding the time for mourning, for sadness, for crying? If any crying is happening at a wedding, it ought to be tears of joy. In that day and age, weddings were often a week-long celebration. It wasn't just a few hours or even an evening like it is in our day and age. This was a week-long celebration. And they obviously knew, no, in the the moment of such a joyous occasion, it's a cause of of rejoicing, a cause of feasting, of, of celebrating. And Jesus says, such is the case with me being here amongst you, amongst my disciples. His illustration is clear here. Jesus is saying to to the disciples of John, you're totally missing the point. You you really aren't understanding who I am. The bridegroom is here. So the friends of the bridegroom, there will come a time, he says, when they will fast, when I will be taken away from them. I think that's a reference to the crucifixion. There will be a time where, where they will be in a state of doubt and derision, confusion, and they will surely fast when that season comes. But Jesus says, in the here and the right now, when I am amongst them, the bridegroom is here. The friends of the bridegroom don't grieve, don't mourn. It's a wedding. It's a cause of feasting. It's a cause of celebration. Realize that the religious practice of the disciples of John didn't take into respect the the reality of the situation that was before them. The the fact that they were so consumed by their obligation to abide by these man-made legalistic laws, it, it robbed them of seeing the glory of what actually was there before him, Jesus the Christ, the the Son of God, their, their religious practice was not taking into, um, into consideration the, the reality that was there before them. The, the question even that they're asking about fasting shows that they were not rightly seeing Jesus for who Jesus truly was. What, what Jesus was doing and their estimation was too different. It was too unexpected. They, they had their religious molds they, that, that Jesus was not fitting very well into. Jesus wasn't a scribe, and Jesus wasn't a Pharisee. Jesus wasn't even a disciple of John. Jesus was, was healing on the Sabbath. Jesus wasn't fasting on their appointed days that they had created for fasting. Jesus was touching the unclean people, like the leper who, who had leprosy. Jesus was dining with people that were deemed unclean, like the sinners and the tax collectors. Jesus was doing the unexpected, and it did not fit into the established religious mold that they thought Jesus ought to fit within. And so they came before him. And they did not understand that the bridegroom had come, that that God was with us, Emmanuel, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. Instead, they come to him with this little whiny question. 
well, we have to fast, and we fast all the time, and the Pharisees fast, but well, why don't your disciples fast? Jesus goes on to give two more illustrations to make a greater point about really speaking to more than even just fasting being redefined by his presence, but even all of the old covenant. Verse 16, he gives an illustration of a, of a, a, a new cloth, an unshrunk cloth being put on an old garment. This is true in our day and age as well. If you've got an old, worn-out um, outfit that's got, you know, maybe jeans that have a hole in it, and, and you go to patch that, and you patch it with new cloth, unshrunk cloth. Everybody knows when you wash something, it does what? It shrinks. And so especially back in this day and age, if you were to patch that hole with, with a piece of unshrunken cloth, the moment that it got wet and washed and dried out, that, that cloth would shrink to such a degree that it would tear and make the rip even worse than it was before. And so Jesus uses his illustration of you don't put something new into patching something that's old that must be discarded. He then turns to another illustration of, of a wineskin and new wine. And he says, you don't put new wine in an old wineskin. Now, wineskins were made of animal hide. If you know anything about an animal hide, when it's fresh, it's, it's supple. It's, it's, it's able to stretch. New wine being poured into a new wineskin, as the wine would ferment and expand, the, the wineskin could expand with it. If it were an old wineskin and new wineskin were put into it as the wine fermented and expanded, the, the wineskin could not hold it. It would split. It would, it would crack open and all the wine would, would be spilled out. And so Jesus is saying, no, you, you put new wine into a new wineskin and both are preserved. What is Jesus speaking of here? Jesus is speaking of the newness that came through His person, his teaching, and most especially what He would do for us. His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Jesus is teaching here that He did not merely come to reform Judaism, but He actually came to fulfill it. He's going to fulfill the law, as He already said in the Sermon on the Mount, and He is going to usher in something, something new, something better, something greater than that which Judaism could lead the people of God to. Speaking of the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant that He will usher in. Flip to Hebrews chapter 8. Quickly. Hebrews chapter 8, the author of Hebrews quotes the prophecy of Jeremiah 31 regarding a day and age in which God would, would give a new covenant to His people that would be a fulfillment and even a replacement of the old covenant. Look to verse 6. Hebrews 8 and verse 6. But now He has, that is Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as He is a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, this is quoted from Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. 
I will put my laws in their mind, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none of them his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In verse 13, and that he says, A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, the author of Hebrews says, as the age of the the church has been ushered in, as the old covenant has been fulfilled in the the new, that, that Christ has fulfilled the law, and now He is ushering in by His presence, by His person, by His work, especially in His resurrection, something new, a new covenant, a new way of relating to God as sinful humanity. Jeremiah prophesied about it. Jesus at the Last Supper, what did He do as He took the cup and He shared it with His disciples? What did He say? This is the cup of the New Covenant, of of My blood of the New Covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. You need to understand that for thousands of years before Jesus, God had prescribed a way in which sinful man could worship Him rightly. God had given the law, the Torah. God had given the the temple. God had given Jerusalem. God had given the sacrificial system. And they threw those things by faith in that, in the Word of God. It was by faith, but but their faith led to obedience in coming to Jerusalem. It it led to obedience in, in going to the temple. And you must follow the Torah. You must come by the priest. You must offer the sacrifices. This was the way in which they related to God. And Jesus comes on the scene. And we hear it in John 14, 6 most clearly when Jesus stands and He says, What? I am the way. All of these other ways that have come before, Paul will later go on to say, were just a shadow of of that which is to come. They were were the precursors that would teach us and instruct us and, and prepare us for the moment Jesus would come. And He would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. Jesus doesn't disregard the law in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. He is actually the one who fulfills it. He, in a sense, becomes it for us. He is our city of God. He is the temple that was destroyed and then in three days raised again. He is the Word of God incarnate. He is our high priest. He is our eternal sacrifice. Christ has become our all in all. And so if you are a disciple of John, thinking that it is through fasting, apart from Jesus, that you will make your way to God, Jesus looks and He says, No, the bridegroom is here. The friends of the bridegroom don't have to grieve in searching and in longing for the Christ. I am the Christ. I I have come. I'm here. The disciples of John completely missed what was before their very eyes. They were worried about a religious practice of fasting when God incarnate was standing there in their very presence. So that leads me to the application in closing. Don't miss Jesus for all your religious activity. 
this passage reveals to us that Jesus Christ redefines and gives greater meaning to every religious activity. Jesus is not saying here that fasting was bad and that you should never fast. We know that because just a few chapters earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? He says, when you fast, speaking about his disciples, when you fast, we know Jesus himself fasted for 40 days. Jesus is not saying that fasting is wrong. What Jesus is saying is that if you understand who I am, you will realize that even fasting takes on a different meaning, a greater meaning, a greater reality because of me, because of what I'm going to do. We fast differently now because Jesus has come. We don't fast longing for the forgiveness of our sins or desiring an intervention from God that would work about the forgiveness of sins. We fast because of what Christ has done, in light of what Christ has done. We fast knowing our sins are forgiven because He has atoned for our sins. We fast in gratitude for that. We fast longing for His glory. We fast longing for His return. The nature of fasting has changed because of Christ. And what is true of fasting is really true of every Old Testament religious practice and command. We don't throw out our Old Testament. We don't unhitch it from the New Testament. We actually interpret it rightly, fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we look to the Old Testament, and we still abide by it all, but we abide by it in Christ. We must always ask, what does this mean in Christ? Does the Bible say we ought to give a tithe? We should always give 10%. Yeah, I think it's a great principle. It was established in the Old Testament, and it was commanded in the Old Testament to give a first tenth, a tithe to the Lord. But you know that's not repeated in the New Testament? You know what's in the New Testament? That we are to give sacrificially. Like the tithe ought to be a starting point. But we're to give everything because we know it's all His, and Christ gave His life on Calvary for us, and therefore, if He died for us, surely we ought to live for Him. There's a greater call in the liberty and the freedom that is ours in Christ than just a tithe. It's to realize everything we are, everything we have, is the Lord's. When we think of the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, there's still some who think, well, man, I can't eat this on this day, or I don't eat this at all because of the Old Testament. No, we must interpret it in Christ. What does this mean in Christ? Well, it tells us in the New Testament, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. If I could draw a lot of illustrations, applications on that, one being even alcohol consumption to say, yeah, we may be free in Christ to do so, but is is it most glorifying in Christ to do so? And what we eat does have a testimony, does have a stumbling block, can be a stumbling block. Am I glorifying Christ in all that I am, in all that I do, in all that I eat, in all that I consume? Think of the sacrificial system. Any of you bring your lamb in today, your doves, your bull, come up to the altar and be bloody mess of a sacrificial system? No, we don't. Why? Because Christ is our eternal sacrifice. Christ has once and for all paid the debt of sin. So we adhere to the Sabbath. Some, some do out of respect for the Lord. I, I respect that, but ultimately me personally... Now, I've read Hebrews chapter 4, and I know Christ is my Sabbath rest. I've ceased from my works. I am, I am resting in Him and what He did for me upon Calvary. We do not disregard the Old Testament. We uh, abide by the Old Testament. Even the Ten Commandments are binding upon us, not apart from Christ, but in Christ. He's fulfilled them all. And in Him, I've been given the righteousness that I can't get by obeying the Ten Commandments because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We could go on and on and on this morning. 
about how the Old Testament isn't to be ignored and cut off of our Bibles and we only need the New Testament. No, we need our Old Testament and we need to understand the Old Testament and what it reveals to us about the nature of God and the character of God. But hear me, don't divorce it from Christ. Don't miss Jesus in the the midst of it all, that, that He is the one who's fulfilled it. He's the one who became what we could not become, the sinless Son of God, who was a sinless human being, who gave His life a ransom on Calvary for our sins. He became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We don't get righteous by keeping the law or the Ten Commandments. No, if you think you're going to do that, you will be condemned eternally to hell, because you don't measure up. But He did. And in Christ we measure up. In Christ, we've kept all the commands. They're binding upon us, yes, but not in the way so many think. They're binding upon us, but thank God, Christ has become our Lord, our Savior. I could go on, but we must wrap it up. John MacArthur words it pretty well when he says, if you go through any religious exercise apart from an honest attitude in the heart, it is ritual and nothing more. If you fast just to fast or pray just to pray, go to church just to go to church, read the Bible just to read the Bible, sing a song just to sing a song, you've missed it. That if Christ isn't at the center of every religious thing you do, your religious activity is meaningless, it's pointless, it's worthless, it's futile. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Because He's the fulfillment of all things. Because He is our all in all. I often tell you, when I come up to do the little welcome time, let's turn our mind's attention and our heart's affection upon Christ. And I will continue to plead with you. Because honestly, I'm not only pleading with you in it, I'm pleading with myself that I can go play the guitar as we sing, and I can sing with you as you're singing, and I can even get up here and preach a sermon before you. And if Christ is not the, the, the one whom I am doing it for, the one whom I am worshiping in it and, and by it, I, I've missed the whole point of it all, and it, it counts as, as nothing. Don't miss Jesus in the song that you're singing and the worship that you come to and the prayer that is being prayed and the sermon that you are listening to because if you miss Jesus, you have missed everything. So we have a time of invitation. I want to ask this morning, are you in church? If you're in church, I want to ask why are you here? Are you here because it's what you do? It's what you've done week in and week out time and time again and it's just out of habit that you set your alarm because it's Sunday and you got here? Are you here because somebody's made you come? Are you here because somebody else sees you here? Are you here because you think God will see you here and it will earn you some credit before Him someday? Are you really here because you see Christ? You see one who died upon a cross for your sin and was buried and rose again. And you know if He died for you, you ought to live for Him. And you've come this morning because you want to know Him. The fellowship of His suffering. The power of His resurrection. You want to glorify Him in all that you are. And when you eat or drink or whatsoever,
Heavenly Father, we come to You and I pray of Your grace, of Your Spirit, that You would work in our hearts to convict where conviction is needed. Lord, rebuke us where rebuke is needed. Correct us where correction is needed. Instruct us where instruction is needed. So that all of us would be edified by Your Word this morning. Lord, may every believer be drawn afresh and anew to Christ even now and understanding that we can get so busy in religion that we lose Jesus. So worried about what everybody else is doing that we miss Jesus. Keep us from such Lord, keep us worshiping Christ and all that we are by your grace. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who's never come to you in the name of Christ, because of what he did.